These are the words of Yahweh, as written in the book of John 15, verses 18 through 16, chapter 16, verse 4. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have not have sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this in order that the word may be fulfilled that is written in the law. They hated me without a cause. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear, bear witness of me. And you will bear witness also, because you have been with me from the beginning. These things I have spoken to you that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. And these things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. These are the words of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Father, we come before you as your people. We thank you for a time where we can worship, where we can hear your word living word being brought to life. Father, we ask that your hand would hover over this building, that you would protect us from Satan and his minions, that you would prevent them from inhibiting your word going forth. We pray for Tom, that your hand would be on him, that he would speak truth, that he would speak it with clarity, that he would speak it with love. Father, that we would hear what you have to say to us. We are thankful, Father, that you give us the promise of eternal hope. We know that in the short run, it may come with suffering, but we take that with joy because we are your children. We are your servants. We are your holy people. And for that, we give you honor and praise. We pray now that the word would be blessed. We pray in your son's name by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. This, uh, this is one of those passages that probably doesn't get preached a lot at seeker-friendly churches. If your goal is to send the congregation home eager to return next Sunday for yet another super-pleasant, super-uplifting experience of God, you're going to tend to avoid pointing out to them that they're supposed to be hated by the world. And perhaps they're supposed to end up being killed by the world. But here on the evening of the very first Lord's Supper ever celebrated by the people of God, 
That's exactly what Jesus told his disciples. He told them that the world, especially especially the most religious people in the world, would hate them with such a deep hatred that they would actually consider it a service of worship to God to kill them. Killing Christ followers would be seen as the moral high ground. Before the the resurrected Christ blasted a man named Saul of Tarsus into the kingdom of God as he was walking from Jerusalem to Damascus to arrest Christians and see to their execution, Saul was the poster child for exactly what Jesus is describing the world, what he's saying the world would do to believers right here in this passage. Saul became the recipient the Apostle Paul became the recipient of this, of this promise from Jesus. The 11 men who heard these words from Jesus got the ultimate proof of concept that very night and the very next day as the one who had just told them that they would be hated by the world for his sake was arrested and tried and stripped and beaten and mocked and spat upon and publicly crucified, all at the insistence of the most respected religious leaders of his day. Within Christian circles these days, there's a lot of impassioned talk about how we are being increasingly marginalized and muzzled and unjustly treated by the world. And that talk is very often generously laced with a sense of entitlement that says that such treatment must be made to stop. That we Christians need to muster our strength in numbers and figure out how to keep the institutions of our culture from continuing on this accelerating path toward the criminalization of biblical Christianity. And don't don't ever doubt that that's exactly the direction that many would like to see this go. Personally, I'm grateful that there are Christians out there who know the intricacies of the judicial system a lot better than I do and who are doing their best to stem the very rapidly rising tide of that of that anti-Christian sentiment in the culture. There are several men in this room who've been faithfully ministering at a couple of jails in the Dallas area for for many, many years, but I suspect that those men and their families would prefer that they pursue that ministry as visitors rather than as residents. And there's nothing, and there's nothing wrong with that preference. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul instructed believers to pray for kings and for all those who were in authority in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. But that exhortation to pray has been contorted by some Christians into the expectation that God somehow owes us a tranquil and quiet life. That passage is about what we're supposed to do, not about what we're supposed to expect other people to do toward us. Romans 12.18, Paul said, If possible, so far as it depends on you, Be at peace with all men. And again, that exhortation 
is about what we are supposed to do, not about what we are supposed to expect other people to do toward us. If you want to know what you and I are supposed to expect the world to do toward us, you're in the right passage this morning. Jesus doesn't mince words here. He was no more than a couple of hours from being arrested at this point, and he knew it. And he's telling his disciples exactly what they would need to know to make sense of what was just about to happen to him and what would happen to them for the rest of their days on this earth. Because they had been chosen and appointed to bear much fruit for his kingdom. Up to this point, in his final instructions to his beloved disciples before his death, Jesus had been talking to them about their relationship to each other and their relationship to God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now it was time to talk to them about their relationship to the world. And that relationship wasn't going to be pretty. In the first two verses of this passage, Jesus uses the phrase, the world, six times. In fact, five times in just one verse. John 5.19. What Jesus said about the world during His earthly ministry clearly made a big impact on the writer of this Gospel. That two-word phrase, the world, shows up nine times in Matthew's Gospel, three times each in Mark and Luke. Anyone want to guess how many times it shows up in the Gospel of John? 78. 78 times in the Gospel of John. 45 of those times are right here in the Upper Room Discourse in the High Priestly Prayer in chapters 13 to 17, all of which were spoken by the Lord Jesus on the night of His arrest. 45 times He spoke of the world. Just FYI, that same two-word phrase, the world shows up 22 times in the epistle that we know as 1 John. So, if we're going to understand the Gospel of John rightly, we probably need to know what that phrase means, don't you think? Throughout John's writings, the world refers to everyone and everything in the earthly realm that is aligned with Satan rather than with God. But it refers to more than just the people and things. It refers to the rebellious spirit, the mindset, the goals of all who are submitted to Satan's rule. The world is not just God's creation muddling through under the curse. The world is God's cursed creation fighting back against its creator. Now generally, we think of people who hold to conspiracy theories as paranoid nutcases. But there's one conspiracy that Jesus identifies as very, very real. It makes all other conspiracies look like child's play. It has a leader, and that leader has vast resources at his disposal. And he has countless minions. Not cute little funny minions, but deadly serious minions. 
subordinates in both the heavenly and human realms who were eager to do his bidding. Many of his most useful human minions don't even realize that they're part of a conspiracy. In fact, they would be quick to deny that they are. They would be quick to deny that they have any association with Satan at all. But Satan is orchestrating what goes on in their lives and what he accomplishes through them just as if they had signed a contract with him agreeing to do whatever he told them to do. Jesus calls this grand conspiracy the world and he calls its leader the ruler of this world. John 12.31 and 14.30. In John 15 verse 18, Jesus says this about the relationship between him, us, and the world. He says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And in the next verse, we find out that the world's hatred of him and of us is not something that might happen. It's something that will happen. We can count on it. Jesus says, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore, the world hates you. And then he says, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. They did persecute him and they did not keep his word. So that's how it's going to go for us. The world's hatred of us is every bit as certain as its hatred of Jesus. Because a slave is not greater than his master. Why would you and I ever think that we can belong to Jesus Christ and somehow be unscathed by the world's hatred of Him? That's not how it works. Jesus proceeds to tell us exactly why the world hates both Him and us. First, let's look at why the world hates Jesus. That's in verses 21 to 25. He gives us the answer to that question and, and he starts with the most fundamental cause first. The most foundational cause of the world's hatred for him. He says it's because they do not know the one who sent me. They hate the Son of God because they do not know God the Father. And the reason, the reason that the most visceral and murderous hatred came from the Jews, the religious guys, was because they were convinced that they did know God. And then this man calling himself the Son of God and the Son of Man shows up and he tells them over and over, they do not know God. Worse than that, he tells them their father is the devil. The father of lies. And that's why, he says, that's why you can't tolerate the truth because you're, a, you're a, the father of lies. You can't even, he says to them in, in chapter 8, he tells them, you can't even hear me. The most foundational reason that those who are of the world hate Jesus is because they have no knowledge of the true God. Many of them are absolutely convinced that they do, but they don't. In fact, their hatred of Jesus proves that they don't. In John 5.23, Jesus said, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. 
That clarifies a whole lot of stuff that's going on out there, doesn't it? That's called religion. The first reason Jesus gives for the world's hatred of him is because they do not know his father. The second reason is in verse 22. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. They hate him because his words blasted a king-size hole in their case for declaring themselves to be sinless. The word king there in king-size hole is capitalized. When he says they would not have sin, he doesn't mean that until he came and spoke to them, they were sinless. And he does not mean that their ignorance of their own sin somehow excused them in any way in the eyes of God. That's not what he's saying. Throughout the Bible, men's blindness to their own sin is symptomatic of their denial of God. As long as men are satisfied to create gods in their own image, they can call themselves righteous. My God says I'm doing fine. But as soon as they actually hear God's assessment of Himself in the words of Jesus Christ, their pitiful house of cards becomes really hard to to prop up. From that point forward, the only way that they can maintain the assertion of their righteousness is through a painstakingly constructed and militantly defended lie. They have to lie about one of two things, or both. No, one of two things. They either have to lie about the existence of God and say there really is no God to whom they are accountable, or they have to contrive a God who is infinitely less than the real God is. Less less holy, less righteous, less powerful, less sovereign, less merciful, less forgiving, less just. But see, once you've met God, that takes some serious work. Exposure to the truth has a profoundly damaging impact on the lie. Imagine for a moment a guy who's trying to sell his house and he wants to sidestep the whole realtor thing, which is a bad idea. I I know that. And so he paints his house and he fixes it all up and he gets the landscaping looking really great. And he puts a sign out in the front yard that says open house. And lo and behold, he gets a knock on the door and there's a a gentleman who's a prospective buyer. And so the owner takes this man into his house and he starts showing him around from room to room and pointing out all the updates that he's made. The guy's really impressed. And then as they're walking through a hallway, the buyer notices there's a staircase going down to the basement. And, and as the owner's trying to escort him out of the house, the man just walks down the staircase and he opens the door and The basement's there, but it's pitch black. He can't see a thing past, you know, just right past his nose. And so the owner says, "Hmm, well, you know, we've had a power issue here and I can't put my hands on a flashlight right now. But trust me, basement's great. You can do whatever you want to with it. It'd be a great exercise room, study, make it into an extra bedroom. And the owner starts walking back up the staircase. And as he does, you know, this buyer starts to get kind of a, bad feeling about this, sounds kind of fishy, and 
he just takes another glance into the room and he notices a string dangling from the ceiling just in front of him. So he reaches up and he pulls a string and voila, on go the lights. He hears a bunch of rapid fire clicking. And he looks down and he sees all these little brown things scattering toward the perimeter of the room. Right? And he turns and he looks at the owner and the owner is looking down sheepishly and he says, yeah, well, I've had one exterminator after another out here and they haven't been able to do anything about these roaches. See, the lie persists only until you turn the light on. And then when you turn the light on, the lovers of darkness scatter, panicked, trying to find a little pocket of their familiar, beloved darkness that they can escape back into. That's what happened when the Lord Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth and spoke to mankind. He turned the light on. And man's intense desire to protect the lie and to maintain, to maintain the belief that he was righteous enough for a holy and perfect God, it was exposed. And the world ran for cover. But it's a fight or flight reaction, so some of them took flight and some of them took fight. And the ones that went for fight went after Jesus with everything they had and they went after those who were associated with Jesus with everything they had and they have never stopped doing so since that day. People don't like it when that happens. People do not like being told that their self-made standard of righteousness is filthy rags in the eyes of the one true, perfectly holy, perfectly righteous God. That the standard that He actually requires of men is His own righteousness. Leviticus 19.11 does not say, you are to be kind of holy, for I, Yahweh your God, am kind of holy. It's not what it says. Matthew 5.48, Jesus said, you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And by the way, the topic of that passage is what kind of righteousness passes muster with God. Start in verse 21. You'll see what I'm talking about. And the answer is, there's only one answer. His righteousness. And there's only been one man who ever walked the face of this earth who met that standard and his name was Jesus. People don't like it when you point out that they're not good enough for God. I told you this story one time, but I, years ago I was sitting in a McDonald's and got in a conversation with this elderly man and he was a World War II veteran and I shared the gospel with him and, and he got really, really angry. And he said, before he stormed out of there, not finished eating, he said, you cannot tell me that I'm not good enough for God. He said, you don't know the things that I've done and the things that I've been through. You cannot tell me that I'm not good enough for God. And as he's walking out, I said to him, I'm not the one who's saying it. The Jews treated God's law as a standard to which they could attain and, and believe they had actually attained it. They maintained that watered-down imitation of God's requirement of men for a really, really long time. And then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. They heard the Word of truth and they beheld His glory and their lie 
was forever exposed. It wasn't only Jesus' words that exposed men's sinful hearts to the light of God's holiness. It was also his works. That's the third reason that the world hates Jesus. Verses 23 and 24, He who hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well. He had said to his disciples, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. They saw him and they hated what they saw. And he says that means they hate my Father. I believe the works to which Jesus is referring here when he says, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they they would not have sinned. I believe that's all of his works. It's not just the miracles. I believe it's everything Jesus did during the time that he was here on this earth. Jesus, who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature, showed mankind the character of God in the flesh in every word that He spoke and in every single thing that He did. And once once our selfish, hypocritical, unforgiving, ungracious, unloving, deceptive, altogether inglorious hearts have been exposed to the words and the works of God the Son, we can never again deny the depravity in our own hearts without working really, really hard at it. The very next day after Jesus said these things to his disciples, everything he had taught and demonstrated to them about God's character during his time on earth was put on perfect display on a hill outside Jerusalem. At the cross, the world beheld the Father in the Son more comprehensively than at any time before or since. And the truth about him, the truth about him, unmasked the truth about them. And they were unwilling to face that truth. Listen again to verses 22 and 24. Just those two. Listen. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin, but now they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well. That's why the world hates Jesus. Because the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ smokes out who they truly are. And they don't want to know who they truly are. That's why the world hates Jesus. Why does the world hate us? (laughs) It's pretty simple. The world hates us because we're with Him. In fact, much more pervasively than that, we're of Him. He said, if the world hates you, verse 18, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Throughout this foundational discourse that started in chapter 13, the overriding assumption behind the assignment that Jesus gave to His disciples to go and bear much fruit is that they and we 
will be to Jesus as Jesus is to his Father. We will be to Jesus as Jesus is to his Father. We will love others on Christ's behalf as he loved us on his Father's behalf. We will do Christ's works as he did his Father's works. We will speak Christ's words as he spoke his Father's words. That's the assignment for us as agents and image bearers and brothers. Joint heirs with Jesus Christ of God Himself. If you and I are saying the same thing about God and man that Jesus and His Father said about God and man, they won't keep our word any more than they kept His. Why? Because when we say what He said, It exposes their sin. And they don't like it when that happens. Beloved, I can't even begin to imagine how grievous it is to God when He looks down and He sees His children tripping all over themselves to avoid calling sin, sin. So that they can be seen as tolerant and loving in the eyes of this godless culture. I will say to you again, the most unloving thing, the single most unloving thing that you will ever do to another human being is convince him that his sin is not sin. Because as soon as you do, you have eliminated his need for Jesus Christ. You don't want to do that. The second most unloving thing you will ever do is contribute in any way to the belief that there's more than one way to God. For the most part, the world doesn't get particularly excited if we say that Jesus is a way to God. As long as everyone gets to determine his own path to God and is tolerant of everybody else's path, we all get along really well and nobody has to worry about actually being accountable to God or or to people. If your path starts to make you feel uncomfortable, there's plenty of other paths. Just pick another one. But as soon as you point out that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, you become a hate monger. That's how it works. As soon as you point out that Jesus said, He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. As soon as you point out that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus as soon as you point out that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven which has been given among men by which we must be saved. In other words, as soon as you say the same things about Jesus, as Jesus said and His Father said, the world's tolerance of you comes to a screeching halt. And you become the enemy of this culture really quick. And the same thing is, that's true of our words is true of our works. You and I are called to adorn the message that we proclaim on Christ's behalf by living out His life. First, toward one another in the community of, of His people and then toward the lost. You guys know Galatians 2.20. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me 
and delivered Himself up for me. When you and I live by faith in Him with our tent firmly staked in His love for us, that's what the last passage was about, the life that others see in us is His life. His life. And when men behold Jesus, even in these ragged earthen vessels, His light reveals the truth about their hearts. And there are two essential responses that men have when that happens. Either they turn to Him in faith or they turn away from Him in hatred. No human being can actually get a look at God and have a non-committed response. It's either trust or it's hatred. And if it's hatred, and if you're the one through whom that, that person got that sin-revealing look at the light of Jesus Christ, his unbridled hatred of Jesus will turn into unbridled hatred of you. That's how it works. Years ago, I knew a brand new believer who got a job with a union shop in Houston doing a particular trade, and in no time at all, his co-workers became exceedingly angry with him. In fact, angry to the point of threatening to do him bodily harm. You know why? Because he was working so hard, he was making them look bad. All it took to make them hate him with a violent hatred was for him to do his work with all his heart as unto the Lord. That's all it took. That's how you adorn the message. And you do it fearlessly. And when you add to that the bold proclamation of the message, man, you're toast as far as this world is concerned. As far as those who are aligned with Satan are concerned, whether they know it or not, that that's, that whether they know that's who they are or not. I should briefly mention at this point that oh, well, a couple of things. First, you will meet people of peace along the way who are of the world, but who are not wholeheartedly committed to the world's hatred of God and of His people. You'll want to take your time with those people. And above all, you'll want to pray earnestly for God's work in their hearts. They're out there. In many cases, those are the ones whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. And God intends to put you together with them so He can just bring them right in to His kingdom. There's another thing that's important for us to consider here, and that is that we must be careful not to give the world a legitimate basis for hating us. Right? 1 Peter 2.12, Peter says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Keep your behavior excellent. In Titus 2, Paul instructs believers of all walks of life to live always in a way that adorns the message that we bear rather than contradicts it. But it is significant, brothers and sisters, that Jesus does not present those exhortations to His disciples at this point. He doesn't even raise the subject of how their own sinful words and behavior might give people good reason to hate them. He knows that could happen. But that's not the point here. He's focusing sharply on one simple reality. 
we whom he has chosen and called out of the world to be his, will of a certainty be hated by the world and persecuted by the world and possibly killed by the world, all without any just cause, just because we are his. It's not hypothetical. It's how the Christian life works. After hearing everything Jesus just said in verses 18 to 25, it would be easy for us to think, okay, thanks for the warning, Jesus. I'll be sure to keep my faith in you to myself. But he didn't say, he didn't say this world will only hate you if you talk about him. He said the world will hate you for being his. The world will hate you because he took you out of the world and he made you his. See, Try as you might, there's one thing about you that you cannot dodge if you're a Christian, and that's your identity. You might say, if you think about all that, and you think, okay, then you're saying I'm stuck with this? You might say, well, that's not what I bargained for. (laughs) I have news for you if that's what you're thinking. It wasn't a bargain. It was God taking your dead, dry bones and giving you eternal life in Jesus Christ. You didn't choose Him. He chose you. He bought you for Himself at the incalculable price of His own Son's blood. You had as much to do with that as you had to do with picking your parents. And when He chose you, He appointed you to bear much fruit. And guess what, beloved? You are stuck with that assignment. But the really good news is that you have the greatest job in the universe. The blessings here and now are better than you will find anywhere else. And the blessings later are off the charts. And just for your information, the benefits package is eternal. And here's just a little bit more detail on your job description. This is verses 26 and 27 of chapter 15. When the Helper comes, the Holy Spirit, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness of Me, and you will bear witness also, because you have been with Me from the beginning. You will bear witness. And you'll never be alone in that witness. The Holy Spirit who now indwells every child of God will always be right there in you, with you, alongside you. And when the words come out of your mouth about Christ, the Holy Spirit will lend His power to those words. He will multiply those words beyond anything that you can imagine. Because He's the one who does the saving. You're just the instrument. I've mentioned this before, but it bears repeating. Our missionary friend Colin said to me years ago, there is no place on earth where it's okay to preach the gospel. I hope you remember those words. I've had those words. I've been carrying those around for 20 plus years. There is no place on earth where it's okay to preach the gospel. But that's exactly what the Lord Jesus tells us we will do. We will be His witnesses both by our words and by our works. And as the world sees and hears Him in you, they will hate you for one very simple reason. Because they hate Him. That's not paranoia. It's fact. 
And it is not something to fear. It's something to know. So what does it mean if you're a child of God and the world doesn't hate you? Well, it's not rocket science. If the world sees Christ in you, they hate you. If they don't see Christ in you, they don't hate you. But only one of those two ways of living is viable or sustainable for a child of God. If you're going through this, your life this side of glory, hiding the light of Christ in you under a bushel so the world won't see it, doing your best to make sure that people don't actually know whose you are, you might get away with it for a little while without being smoked out. But the emphasis there is on the words, a little while. By the way, if you're convinced that no one who would even try to do such a thing couldn't possibly belong to Jesus, I urge you to keep reading in this Gospel just a little further. Just hours after Jesus spoke these words, Peter denied any association with Jesus as forcefully as he possibly could. Did that mean Peter didn't belong to Jesus? Not according to Jesus. Jesus, throughout everything that he says here, treats Peter as his beloved child. But guys, what Peter did that night was no way for any child of God to live. It denies the whole reason God left you here after calling you out of the darkness. And God loves you too much to allow the light that he has put in you to stay hidden. He made you. His, to give you His joy and to fill that joy up to overflowing. And that happens, you know when that happens? That happens when He's producing lots of good sticky fruit through us. There is no way, there is no way that God is going to let you experience anything approximating real fulfillment or real joy if you're bent on making Christ in you invisible to this world. All you're going to do is make yourself miserable. Because you have a perfect father. He's really good at what he does. He scourges every son whom he receives. Why? Because that's his legitimate child. And he's bent on making you share his holiness and making you useful. So, if you're hiding the light in you under a bushel, which means you're hiding yourself because you are the light, then you might as well throw in the towel and get out from under that hedge. He's not going to let you stay there. That's not a threat. That's a promise. I listened to several great sermons on this passage this week. One of my favorite, as is often the case, was from Sinclair Ferguson. And toward the end of the message, he asked the congregation a question. He said, are you, are you worth persecuting? Are you worth persecuting? I thought for a long time about that question and and I concluded that the only legitimate answer to it is no, I am not and I never will be, but the one who is in me absolutely is. Anyone who actually meets Jesus Christ must either trust Him or hate Him. My assignment is just show and tell. Show Him to lost men and women and tell them about Him. The hatred that will inevitably be directed toward me by the lovers of this world 
when they see Him in me is not something to be avoided. In fact, it's the opposite of something to be avoided. Here's what Peter says, 1 Peter 4, verses 12-14. to Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. That means explosive rejoicing. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. You know what that means? It's it's beautiful. The word rest there, it means takes leisure. It, It means to be refreshed, to relax. Beloved, when you are hated for Jesus' sake, the Holy Spirit who dwells within you is grinning from ear to ear with satisfaction and pleasure. Not because He likes to see you hurt, but precisely because He dearly, dearly loves you. And He wants you to know the joy that belongs to Jesus Christ. It is in your willing and joyful participation in the sufferings of Christ that you, as a chosen and appointed bearer of Christ to the world, make Him most visible and become most joyful. There is no greater blessing for the child of God than to do what God saved you to do. And that's what God saved you to do. The last few verses... Really just about done here. In the last few verses of this passage, Jesus tells His disciples why He was just now making some of these things known to them. It is strategically important for you and me to know what we walked into when we put our faith in Jesus, or better, what He walked us into. He's not talking here about how we became His. He's talking about what happened when we became His. We went from being of the world to being of Him. And because we didn't change location, that presents a problem for us. We used to be friends of the world in which we live. Now we're friends of Jesus and that makes us enemies of the world. You and I wake up every single day behind enemy lines and the enemy's resolve is fierce and growing fiercer by the day. In case you hadn't noticed. The ruler of this world is becoming ever more persuasive in the minds of his troops. And in their eyes, we are becoming ever more worthy of their hatred. His followers, most of whom don't even realize whom they're following, are becoming more and more convinced that they are on the side of good and we are on the side of evil. Whatever they call God, they are becoming ever more convinced that doing away with people like us is the greatest service of worship that they can present to that God. And what Jesus wants you and me to know is that all of that is His fault. It's all because He chose us out of the world to make us His eternal treasure. He says at the end of this, He told us these things so that when they happen, we won't be surprised. We won't stumble from the path. 
will know that to be despised by this world for Christ's sake is the greatest badge of honor that we will ever bear in the time that remains to us on this earth. We will stand firm and we will be joyful and we will know that our Savior and our God has prepared a table for us in the presence of our enemies and He's sitting down to dinner with us every day. And nobody can take that away from us. Beloved, we have not one thing to fear from this world. Not one thing. Loving Father, thank You for these these dear brothers and sisters, these joint heirs of You with Christ. Father, make us so full of joy over the over the, the assignment, the identity and the assignment of being representatives of Christ in this world, that we've got no place for fear. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.